me, Mike. Oh, that's better. Whatever you did there. That's good. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. Let's go. All right. Wow. I know. <laughs> Peanut gallery. Yeah. That's right. Well, we are. If anybody hadn't filled this out, if you don't know what it is, then you haven't filled it out. So I need. And it's all it is is a questionnaire regarding your belief on the rapture. You don't have to know anything to fill it out. This is simply. You don't have to study to fill it out. This is simply what you presently believe. We're not talking about it this morning. I am going to move into a whole study on eschatology, <coughs> which is just an end times. And so um, I've been doing lots of study. It will start on April the 9th. And so I'm still collecting these. This, this is anonymous. It doesn't matter what you put down. Um, it's just for my information so I know the room I'm talking to. That's all it is. And so we're going to uh, tackle that. And if, if you haven't filled this out, you can do so. So, Tommy, does anybody, anybody need one? <clears throat> and then you can just turn them in at the back of the table, lay them down, I'll get them. Like, it doesn't, you don't put your name on it, so, you know, no one's going to be like, there's no theology police going to put you in jail or anything like that. You'll be fine. Yeah, I promise, no theology police. It doesn't matter. No shaming or anything. And I will just tell you, when we do move into studying eschatology, the rapture, revelation, I mean, you just have to do so with an open hand. And you have to be super humble about it. And what I mean by that is that you have to approach revelation and the rapture and your eschatology with the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the insight that you're still teachable so that you don't know everything. You did probably. Okay. We'll pray. Pray for my voice. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy. I pray, God, that you would move in this house. God, that you would open our ears to hear. I know, God, there are many needs in the house, Lord God. I know, Father, there are those who are struggling, Lord, with the future decisions. And I just ask right now that you would give them clarity, Lord. I pray, Father, for those who have needs in their body, that you would touch them, that you would administer healing grace even now because we know it is your delight to give good gifts to your children. I pray, Father, that those who need God <clears throat> direction and help God in their family, I pray that you would be with them, Lord. Those who are burdened about their, their children or their grandchildren or their mothers and fathers, I pray, Father, that you would give them inroads into those relationships to see grace established. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. pollen isn't it pollen so here we are today I will I will try to speak from my diaphragm that helps me somehow today we're going to talk about something it's called supply line or supply life supply line or supply life now as we get started this morning I I don't know really where I want to start at let's go would somebody for me read Hebrews 7.17, and another person, no, just Hebrews 7.17. If somebody would just read that, Hebrews 7.17. Does anybody have it yet? Supply line or supply lot? Yeah, Tommy, go ahead and read it. For he testifies. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That is a direct quote from the Psalm of David, Psalm 110 and 4, a messianic psalm. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just set that aside. I just want you to hear that. Today, as we begin to talk, I want to talk about there are primary sources, there's secondary need, and there's tertiary conflict. Some of you are like, what? I just said first, second, and third. Primary source, 
there's secondary needs, and then there's a tertiary conflict. I just used tertiary because it's the next word, primary, secondary, tertiary. That's the only reason I used it. So as we begin to look at this, let's, I, I noticed that in Genesis, something popped out at me the other day. Genesis 3, 1 through 8. I'm going to read it to you out of the Tree of Life version because it's in this version that they're, the person who is, transla- the translation you read often puts in interpretation with capitalizations, or if they move in a, a, a the or an A, or if they remove it. Now listen to this. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Genesis 3, 1 through 8. But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai had made. Interesting thing about the word shrewd, it's not an evil word. Shrewd is a good thing. Yeah, you want to be shrewd in your business dealings. Shrewdness is, is praised throughout the Proverbs. So what you're supposed to understand there is the serpent was shrewd. And so you've already, see you at this point, you've already formed your opinion of the serpent being the devil. You're way ahead. But what if you were just, what if you could remove yourself and just go back to the start and it was just you and you had dealings with this animal, this being called the serpent. And he was just shrewd. Now all of a sudden you understand why they're talking to him. But see what we we're, we're the, the narrative is ex, is beginning to explode and blossom. But when you read the Bible, you always need to be putting yourself in the place that you don't know anything other. Don't don't move to where you're at in the timeline. Only stay in the place of the text and it will expose so much more to you. So the <clears throat> the serpent is shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai made. So it said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the trees of the garden? Now all of a sudden, see, you're listening to the conversation differently, aren't you? The woman said to the serpent, of the fruit of the trees we may eat, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it. And you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you most assuredly won't die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now the woman saw, now the woman saw that the tree was good for food. See how she, the suggestion led her to the next, oh, but, but you, see, shrewd. See the shrewdness at work? So, is good for food, and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her. Where was he at? Where was Adam at? Right beside her. He's he's not conversing. He's listening to their conversation. So, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. I love that, the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai in the midst of the tree of the garden. And it capitalized it there. In the midst of the tree of the garden. And he called to them and said, where are you at? So what the interpretation in this translation is, is that it believes that the forbidden fruit was what? I'm asking for the real fruit. It told us in there what the fruit was. A fig. Because it said they sold. Now, this is just an interpretation in here. See, they hid themselves in the tree. 
and they sewed fig leaves together. Now, see, this Tree of Life version, this is a very Jewish version. So when you're reading this, you're getting a lot of Jewish culture and mindset in here, which I thought was fascinating. That <clears throat> So according to this translation, it's telling us that the tree that they ate from was the fig tree. Now, if that does to your brain what it does to mine, it's like... Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was in full leaf, but it didn't have its, <clears throat> the fig tree bears fruit twice. When it's first budding, that's the inferior fruit. And then it goes into full leaf in the fall, and it bears the best fruit. So when he came by, the tree was in full leaf, so was this tree, because they took the full leaves and they covered themselves. And so when he saw no fruit on this tree, on this tree that couldn't do what it promised, couldn't nourish, couldn't supply, couldn't provide, and now we are few thousand years down the road and Jesus is bringing, he's straddling between two narratives and he's pulling them right side by side so we can look at them and see the tree of life cursing the tree of death that's not fruitful. Humanity is never fruitful in their attempt to go after the things of the world by their own means. They're just not. And so <clears throat> we look at, there's just so much in my mind. I have to move on because I, I have something more to say than just talking about the fig tree. But if you just meditate on that for a while, how about this one? Noah, whenever he sent the dove out, he came back with a fig branch. Telling, it's a symbol for Israel. Telling us, though, it's, it's still communicating that he's going to break the curse of sin and death through this beautiful covenant nation. But when it left, <clears throat> when the dove left the final time, it didn't come back. It flew and flew through the scripture. 3,000, 4,000 years until the day that Jesus stood in the Jordan and John dumped him in that, that and he raised him up and we see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and we see the completion of the promised announcement from Noah's saving grace, the ark, landing on the ark. That's just one. See, this is how the Bible works. You can use the Bible topically. Rub it off. Take away a little pain. But you can also look at the word of God and get into the subcutaneous that word? Layers of it. Now, when I was in <clears throat> Sunday school in the Baptist church as a child, I colored pictures of Ruth and Boaz. I colored pictures of David slaying Goliath. I just learned it topically. And my Sunday school teachers were so faithful to apply it like a salve. But then as I grew in the things of the Lord, because the Father of Spirits is not, He's developing my spirit. And then I learned to use the Word of God, not topically, but subcutaneously, to my spirit man. And it became more than just a salve of numbing 
a placebo. It became a healing balm in the deepest part of who I am. The coloring pictures was good. My fear is we're still coloring pictures. I feel like sometimes I understand because I feel like it's talking directly to me. The author of Hebrews saying, I want to give you meat, but you just don't have the teeth for it. I want to have the teeth for meat. I want to use the word more than just a topical ointment to numb me to the sin that's around me. I want it to be so deeply rooted in my inner man that it explodes out as fruit to the dying, that it comes forth, that the words that come forth out of my mouth are not words of Andrea Lee Sanders, but they're words of the Spirit. You may say, that's a big ask. I've got a big God. And that means I have to forfeit, lay down, die to my own topical plans. Because God is looking for a supply line. He said, I die daily, but please let's put that, let's put that in context. If you read that scripture, Paul says, he names all of his persecutions. And he says, I die daily for the cause of Christ. What he's saying is, I face death daily. It's not so much that you are dying to yourself daily. Because you can only die once. Truly. You can truly only die once. Well, where do I die? At the cross. At the cross. Where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. And now... I am happy all the day. I, I just died once. And now that death, I walk through this life as a dead man walking, but living. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for me. Oh. But we look here, fig leaves. <coughs> the problem was reduced to two things. Food and clothing. Food and clothing. Hmm. Let's follow the narrative. The food source choice brought about a clothing problem. It's just in the scripture. The problem continues. Man left his abundant garden abode with worry-free supply and traded it for resistance, work, and worry. Mankind's basic needs drove him to sometimes aimlessly, sometimes sinisterously, sometimes sovereignly. He was driven by his own needs. So we pick up the Bible narrative in Genesis 28. Let's look at this. Lord, help me. I think the Lord wants me to stay on course because my voice would typically, I would just go all over the place. But I'm having to be very specific. Okay, when Jacob, oh, 2810, when Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, he happened upon, he happened upon, he just happened upon 
a certain place and spent the night there, for the sun had set. So he took one of the stones from the place and put it by his head and lay down in that place. I so want to talk about the rocks, but I'm not going to. I don't have the voice for it. He dreamed. All of a sudden, there was a stairway set up from the earth. There was a stairway set up. Where am I at? Set up on the earth. Somebody say that. On the earth. Where was it set up? How many? Have we got anybody on the earth? Hold that. There was a stairway set up, on, set up, established on the earth. And its top reached to the heavens. Somebody say, on the earth. And now we got another dimension, the heavens. And behold, angels of God going up and down it. And he said, I am Adonai, God's at the top. I'm sorry, God was at standing at the top. And he said to Jacob, I am Adonai. What an introduction. The God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land in which you lie. The land in which you lie. I will give it to you and your seed. Your, I'm telling you, God means what he says. And land is a big deal to God. When Land's a big deal to God. And Israel is a big, big, big deal to God. Still is. Still is. He said, the land which you, out on which you lie, I will give it to you and your seed. Your seed will be as the dust of the land. Land. See, you got that again? Seen. The seen. See, we've already got a ladder on earth, the scene, and we've got it reaching up into another place called the, now y'all are with me. So your seed will be as the dust, seen, and it will burst forth from the west and the east and from the north and the south. I thank you, Lord. I'm part of that promise. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed, and in your seed, uh, to me, behold, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. God's still talking, and I will bring you back to this land. And I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, undoubtedly, Adonai is in this place. And I was unaware. So he was afraid and he said, how fearsome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Lift up your heads, oh, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors. Who are you? We got any supply lines in the house? We need some earth to lift up and some heaven to come down and some earth to lift up and some heaven to come down. Supply lines. And so he set up this place. He said, I'm going to make a memorial here. How many of you do the same thing? That stone he just laid his head on? Oh, gosh, I'm not going to do it. He built that as a memorial stone. And he poured some oil on it. He said, this is, I'm making a marker right here because God met me here. How many of y'all ever done that? And he's, listen what he said. He called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God. Beth is um, house and El is God. Though thoroughly, uh, formally, it was called Luz. He changed the name. Always happens in the Bible, doesn't it? Then Jake, has he ever changed it? Has he changed anybody's name in here? He should have. If he hadn't, he can. Then Jacob made a vow. Listen to the vow. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and watch over me on this way that I am going. And provide me with food and clothes to wear. Then I return in peace to my father's house. What will he do? He said, 
So this stone, which I set up as a memorial stone, will become God's house. And everything you provide me, I will definitely give a tenth to you. Priority. Wait, y'all think it's going to get better. That was me. I've always wanted to tap dance. That's my tap dance. These boots, they, they click, so I tap dance in them every time I wear them. I'm like, animal crackers in my soup. Okay. So, tithe to Jacob equaled food and clothes. Is that just, that's just too simple. It is kind of simple because it's more than that. He associated tithe with food and clothes somewhat. He associated, now get this, he associated tithe with priority. And priority he associated with honor. And honor he associated with loyalty. And loyalty he associated with what God deserves. All the way back. Something he did on earth that brought about a heavenly release. Now, see, if we can't understand this idea, God is the God of all creation. And there's one thing and one thing alone that he deserves. Glory. Glory. Honor. Loyalty. Priority. All summed up in the action of, say it, say it, tithe. Tithe, I've told y'all, if y'all were in the Ruth study, 10 means, it's two numbers, biblically. Biblical numerology is not like Eastern numerology, like eight, you know what I'm talking about? Biblical numerology is another teaching method in the Bible. It teaches beyond just the words. See, like Asian numerology, it's used occultically to guide. I can't live in that house because it has an unlucky number. That's not how the Bible uses numbers. It's communicative of who God is. It may ultimately guide us, but not through superstition. Ten comprised of two numbers. Six, the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Four, the day of government. The sun and the moon and the stars were created on the fourth day. They govern the earth, right? They set times and seasons. So ten, when you see it, it represents man under his chosen governance on the earth. You're smiling, Mike. I may have to hand this off to you. So when we tithe, it is a declaration. God, you are my chosen governance on the earth. And this is a demonstration on earth of my priority, which is a demonstration of my honor, which is a demonstration of my loyalty, which is a demonstration of what you deserve, glory. Where did he get that idea? Sure, but this is not even about money. This is not even about money. supply line but he's trying to establish a supply line on earth he's trying to he's trying to get someone who will set up the ladder in their heart where he can source heaven to you you see Jesus Jesus when he called Nathaniel He said, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the, when you were under the fig tree. 
you're under your dilemma. But, and he was a word of knowledge. And it was Philip, Nathaniel, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said, oh, you're the Christ. And Jesus laughed. He's like, oh, you believe because I told you? I saw you under the fig tree? And I can just see him leaning in and going, stick with me and you're going to see much more. What am I going to see? You're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did he just call himself? The ladder. But then when Paul uses the house of God in Corinthians corporately that we're the house of God, but individually, because what, what, what? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What, what does the temple of God do consorting with Belial? I'm going to tell you this. This is what the Lord told me to tell you this morning. I'm assuming he just took hold of my voice this morning so I would be strategic and not wild like I normally am. He told me to tell you. He is tired of sharing his holy space with the enemy. While you decide where you want your ladder to extend to. is what God told me to tell you. And my voice was fine until I came to church. And probably I would have never got to that had I not had this little issue going on. So this is what the Lord is saying. He wants to establish a supply line to you through you. But he is tired, he says, of the supply lie. That you can have the one end of the giving without the responsibility of the receiving. is so true but I'm going to tell you this and that's and that is so true that is so true and money is just the tip of the iceberg it's the it's the tip of the iceberg I'm going to just speak a little prophetically here the Lord is going to move on the earth and this is a year of deciding there are many in the valley of decision you're deciding what type of a supply line you will be. And right now, you're flirting with both sides. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the Lord is saying it's not going to be, a, um, this is your warning. It's not going to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Because it's going to be all or nothing. And you have to decide. You have to decide what will it be. Who will I be? Whose will I be? And this is going to be a move of God that he's going to start using people to be repositories of his giftedness. Not for you, not so you can build big ministries or have big glory or see your name in lights. Because with this gifting is going to come severe persecution. And he is trying to call out those 
Who will actually bear up under the weight of the glory? Because on the one side, when God moves through you, the responsibility of it, you won't get to live like other people. You won't get to act like other people. And you have to decide, do you want to be what you've always been? Because you're not even going to get that option. And that's the warning. Come, come say it. Come here. Come here. Okay. Come on. The system. Yes. Just Genesis 14. Thank you. 17. Now, after he returned from defeating Chedorlaomer, this is Abraham and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Savah, which is the king's valley. Oh, gosh. There's some kings meeting in a valley. This is the valley of decision. There's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of light. And there's the kings of the earth. You get what I'm saying? Who's the kings of the earth? It's you. You're a royal priesthood. So here we are in the king's valley. And when Melchizedek, who Jesus is the priest after, the king of Salem, or peace, brought out bread and wine. Who brought the bread and wine? That's the communion. We see Jesus in the upper room. What does he bring out? Bread and wine. The communion table. Co-munion. Co-union. It's the joining. You're going to pick your side. I really, feel, I really feel the strength on this because there's a lot of people. How long are you going to halt between two opinions? So then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. He was priest of Elion, or God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, and keep going. And he says, um, and blessed be the God of most high who gave your enemies into your hands because Abraham just defeated an army that he should not have been able to defeat. And there is, God wants to use you to, de- to defeat armies that you're not able to defeat. He wants to do that to you. He wants to use you to defeat some generational curses that have existed in your family for years. He wants to use you that way. But you can't make up your mind what side of the fence you want to be on. Oh, he w- this, thus saith God, I feel it. He wants to use you that way. But here's the, here's the deal. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had to Melchizedek. Now listen to this. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the possessions for yourself. That's what Sodom wants, the king of Sodom. He's a wicked king. Give the people to me. Take the possess. How many people have made this trade in their own family? Give me. You take, you worry about building your nine to five career. Just give it to you. Take the possessions. He's dealing. He's dealing with Abraham. You know, you got to earn a living. You got to make the house payment. 
You got to do what you got to do, what you got to do. Come on, Abraham. Just give the people to me. Let's look at Abraham. He's my man. Not really, you know, uh, you might be. (laughs) He's no competition, really. Then Abraham gave a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom said this, take the possessions for your, and give, take, you take the possessions. He said, negotiate with me, Abraham. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in an oath. Loyalty, honor, a pledge, which brings glory. I raise my hand in an oath to Adonai Elohim, the Most High, creator of heaven and earth, not a thread can somebody say close? Or even a sandal strap, close, of all that you have is yours, of yours. I will not take it to you. From I, I take, so you will not say, I've made Abraham rich. You will, I will not take a thread. I will not take a sandal. I won't take one thing from the spoil. I won't take one thing from you possession-wise. Not one, not a thread. A thread, a thread, folks, a thread. He said, I won't take it from you. Least it said that you made Abraham rich. I claim nothing but what the young men have already eaten, and I can't give it back. I'll give it back to you, if you know what I mean. That's fixing to be passed through them. That's all that's going to happen. I can't give back what the young men have already eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So Abraham said, I will not negotiate with you. I won't start an economic system with you. Satan. That's who, that's who Sodom represents here. How many people are doing let's make a deal with the serpent about food and clothing? It's all about food and clothing, isn't it? Food, clothing, food and clothing. It's how, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Oh, Jesus. Oh, wait. Jesus is such an awesome guy. It's like he knew his Bible. It's like he knew it all along. And so he gives the most famous sermon ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And and he's so stinking smart. He said, 6 and 24, Matthew 6 and 24, no one can serve two masters. Can't be loyal one place and not loyal somewhere else. This is more. This is not about money. It's about your loyalty. It's about honor and obedience. And if you've got to be obedient before you can truly be honoring, do so. Because if all you can do is apply the word topically, do it. Because if you'll apply it topically, faithfully, It'll start getting to the core of your operating system, and you'll start doing it not from a topical perspective, but from an inward, an, an inward flow to an outward show. I want to want to. Yeah. I want to. God help me. He did. He sent the Spirit to make us... People of the Spirit. Because you don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to tell anybody to honor God who's born again. I shouldn't have to tell you to do that. If I have to tell you to honor God and you're born again, absolutely. But see, and I'm, I want—I don't want this to even be about money in here. I hope this is coming through. It's about supply line. It's a source. It has it really money is just something that we all understand, and we do understand it. I know we do because we use it all week long. He is, but that's not—he's just using our our understanding. So Jesus here, he says this: You cannot serve God and ma- have two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other. Or he will stick by one and look down on the other. Gosh, you cannot serve God in money. So I say to you, do not worry about your life. 
what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body for what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Where do we get that topic? Genesis 3. The fall. The fall established the supply line problem. Man began to operate purely in the seen realm and to negotiate with the God of this world. And he began to source his supply by his own means while tipping God here and there, while nodding to the Father here and there, but there's no honor or loyalty in it, playing both sides, not knowing which one is going to play out the best. Sort of like you're a, on an episode of Survivor and trying to move, maneuver God. Yeah. Very good. That's right. It was just food. It wasn't the fullness of all that God wants to provide for us. So my point is being thank you for that, that when we establish the supply line in our own life and we actually submit ourselves to the things of God, but from earth, no, from heaven to earth reality and not an earth to earth. I just want to close and read this. Because my voice is gone. Jesus taught the, taught the truth of our origins and the source of our supply with his don't worry sermon. He surmised that our chronic seeking of things does not change a thing. Jesus' clever revelation-styled wording put his finger on man's distortion by pointing out that even with worry-infested labor, Man is ultimately unable to add anything. So the from earth to earth model that humanity was feverishly immersed within instead of a from heaven to earth one composed the struggle that seemed to move the needle very little or only at least momentarily until the next big demand came along. <clears throat> this set up the endless cycle of futility pointed out by the wise preacher Solomon, who himself was also was wise, yet weary. Our lives are more than what we eat and drink. Our body is more than just the planet. On this planet is more than just our coverings. What we are is more than our sensory understanding. If we listen, we can hear the garden dilemma of food and clothing coming through. Eat this. Oh, no. I'm unclothed. Jesus reveals the supply chain truth. Seek first the kingdom. And then everything else will be added to you. Jesus was showing that we are gates and doors to be supplied from heaven and released to earth. Not silos for hoarding, scraping and grinding to get solely from this seen realm. His was an avant-garde message to those hustlers and grinders, those making it happen, lighting to them a better way. This is the way. Walk ye in it. The conclusion is this. When you set your secondary food and clothing as your primary, then you experience tertiary anxiety. When you set your secondary, as your primary, you will always experience the tertiary, the result of anxiety. Anxiety is proof of what? Idolatry. It just is. I don't say that to condemn anyone. I say it to diagnose my anxiety. So, yeah, anywhere there's anxiety, it's because if he was primary, there could be no anxiety. So, here's the 
here it is. When we set our secondary as a primary, then you experience tertiary anxiety, which leads to reaching for the secondary, which is constantly producing anxiety. When the primary is nudged out of the table conversation and happens to be the one who has the answers for the tertiary anxiety, but is pushed further and further away as you begin dealing with the king of Sodom. Shh, wait, Melchizedek. Can't you see we're trying to talk? Are we trying to solve the tertiary anxiety while the primary is quietly sitting by with bread and wine to no avail? And this is everything I wanted to say today. And I often can't say it because I have too much in my own voice. But today he get, he graced me with only having, he, he struck my hip, so to speak. So today I taught with a limp. And I felt like he might have said what he wanted. Lord, I pray that you would set this word as a seal. God, change us. Change me. Ferret out all anxiety and expose it to the light of your word. God, make you the primary. I honor you. I am loyal to you because you deserve all the glory, honor, and praise. That my life will be the, ex the display of that doxological life. One that gives you the glory of the design that you gave me. A supply line to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.